going to, this morning, go into the sixth church of these seven churches, the church at Philadelphia. You can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 13 uh, this morning. We know that as we look at this timeline, this church history timeline, uh, we know that the church at Philadelphia has been referred to as the faithful church. And on that timeline that we've been looking at, it, it covers a period of 170 years from 1730 A.D. to 1900 A.D. I think we have a slide on that, one that I've put up a number of times, uh, the church history timeline there. You can see where it falls. Again, I want to remind you that what we're looking at in these seven churches, they were specific to the day in John's day. These were literal letters written to a literal church in one locale, but they also span church history. And I believe that we can see throughout history these things uh, that we're reading in these letters. We can even see it in this church. We can even see it in our own personal heart as we read each one of these letters. We can examine ourselves in light of these letters. And so with that, let's read the letter together. It's seven verses. Uh, let's read starting in verse 7. He starts with a greeting, and he says, Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, and he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. That's the greeting in this letter. But then we have the commendation to this church at Philadelphia. And again, it's, it's full of promises that we even sang about this morning. And then I comment, the promises of God. I want you to notice as we read the rest of this letter, that there's really seven promises that God gives to the church at Philadelphia within these. You might want to mark them down as, if you have something to write with, mark your Bible up, underline Really the promise that you see. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. And no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. Have kept my word. And have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. And then the encouragement. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, 
I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. And then the promise. Look at verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If I were to underline something of these promises, in verse 8, I would underline, see, I have. Do you see that in verse 8? See, I have. Look at verse 9. Indeed, I will. And then again in verse 9. Indeed, I will. In verse 10, he says, I also will. And then in verse 12, I will. Again in verse 12, I will. Again in verse 12, I will. You see, what God says that he's going to do, God will do it. The promises that God has made to you and I, God will fulfill those promises. What God says, he must do. What God says, he will do. And those are the promises that we hang on to as believers. It's why we have the assurance and the confidence in our hearts that when he saved us and he's gone away to prepare a place for us and he's coming back to receive us unto himself, we can stand on those promises. This word Philadelphia, the name of this church, it comes from the Greek word Philadelphus, and it can be broken down into two parts. Phileo, which means to love, and then Adelphus, which means fond of a brother. And so this word Philadelphia, the name of this church that Jesus is writing to, we could say that the name of this church means brotherly love, or one who loves his brother. What a great name for a church, isn't it? It's really the greatest evidence that we're a child of God. Did you know that? The love of God being poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit and the love of God coming forth out of your life upon other people. You shall know them by their love one for another. It's really the greatest thing that could be said of a church. That's a church that loves Loves God and loves one another. Philadelphia, just a little bit of history. It was built by King Attalus II, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, he was the king of Pergamum. And his brother, Amenus, uh, the king of Lydia, he named the city. 
And he named it because of his love that he had for his brother. Very interesting. The church at Philadelphia. It's also important to note as we've been going through these letters that Philadelphia and the other church, Smyrna, the second church, are the only two churches out of these seven letters where God has no complaint against them. As I've been sharing, I, I mean, I want to be the church of Philadelphia. Out of all the seven, this would be the one. If this could be characteristic of Calvary Chapel Fellowship, this would be the one. But God be the judge. And we also need to look at our own hearts and say, are we this church? But with that said, even of this church at Philadelphia, there are no perfect churches. And you know how I know that? Because there's no perfect people. None of you are perfect. I hope that's not a new revelation to you. None of you are perfect, nor am I. And thus this church is not perfect either. Nor is any other church perfect. But when the Lord makes a commendation against the church and has nothing to say about he knows that there are failures. He knows that there, but he looks and he sees the intent of the hearts of the people in that church. And God was pleased with the church of Philadelphia. We have a map of, of the seven churches that I've been putting up, and you can see where Philadelphia is, 27 miles away from that last church called Sardis. Remember, these were circular letters that were just making their way, all of these letters making their way to the seven churches of Asia Minor. It was located in a, a, a region there, uh, right on the borders of Mysia, Lydia, Pergia. And I think you can see in the, the next slide, you can see how it was broken down in the day into these regions. Why is that important? Well, Philadelphia was one of those uh, cities that was called a border town. In other words, it had the border of these three regions that came up against it. It was a trading city, but it was also a perfect location for the gospel to be dispersed out of it because people were coming in from various ways and going out. It gave that church at Philadelphia a great open door. And it was a great open door for taking the message of the gospel to the surrounding area. Many Jews lived in this city of Philadelphia. It was also a city that suffered uh, great uh, earthquakes and frequent earthquakes even to this day. It's, it's actually a city that is built on a fault line. And it was in 17 AD that a couple of historians, church historians, wrote of an earthquake that happened that pretty much leveled the city of Philadelphia and they came back and they rebuilt the whole city. But because of that, because of the frequent earthquakes, because you know, if you've seen the pictures that I've been putting up of a lot of the architecture, I mean, these columns, these stone uh, buildings that were big, when an earthquake hits, you don't want to be in one of them. You don't want to be around. They come tumbling down 
These are heavy stones, not a place that you want to be in an earthquake place. And the people were afraid. History tells us a lot of people after that uh, great earthquake, and there were a number of great earthquakes that hit it, the people lived on the outskirts of the city. They were afraid to come back in and live within the city. It was actually under Roman rule until 1379 when it fell to the Muslim Turks in that city. Today, I think I have a picture of a modern day uh, city that's there today. Uh, not much of a, a Christian influence within the city today. It's actually called Al-Ashir, uh, the city of God is what it's been referred to. And it's a lot of Muslims live there, Philadelphia today. Not a large city, not a large population of people. Not really archaeologically, not even a whole lot that is left. I think I've got one picture of some columns uh, that are there. Uh, these pillars that you see there of an ancient Christian church is about all that really remains there in this city archaeologically that's all that's there but it's interesting that what does remain are these pillars we read on in our text in verse 7 it says and to the angel of the church at Philadelphia right? to the pastor as I've been saying which I believe the angel is and by the way I'm not an angel but to the angel, to the messenger of the church of Philadelphia. Your Bible may have one of these captions above this church, the faithful church. I like that. Or it might read the missionary church. Or it could read the serving church. And those are all great names. I would like any one of those to be attributed to this church. It couldn't be said, though, of the last church that we read, if you were here through it, the church at Sardis. Remember, the church at Sardis had a testimony of some works that they were doing, but Jesus said, you're a dead church, and even what you have is dying. Sardis became that church known as the Reformation Church. When theology became to come back into importance again and, and things started coming back to the Word of God. And it was a, a good time in church history for Reformation to begin. But what we saw in this church at Sardis is even though they were reforming theologically, they were lacking power. They were lacking that empowering of God's Holy Spirit. And how I shared how important it is that we would be dependent as a church, dependent as an individual Christian upon the Holy Spirit of God that gives you the power to live your, your walk with Christ, that gives you the power to be able to be a witness for Jesus Christ. I don't want to be the church like Sardis. It's dying. Jesus warned the church at Sardis. He says, be watchful. 
and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. They had works, but they didn't measure up to what God's standard was. We see at the church at Philadelphia that they had works also. But God was pleased. God was pleased with the works that he was observing, that he was able to see happening in this church. See, 2,000 years ago, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit poured, was poured out upon the church. Those 120 that were in that upper room that received that Holy Spirit upon them, that power, and we see the birth of the church, and the church was expanding from that day forward. It was a healthy church. It was a church that was going out and taking the gospel out to this world. It had not yet had much time to be corrupted, but it did not take long for corruption to start creeping into the church. False doctrines coming in. False teachers coming in. The question could be asked of the church today. How far has the church slipped away from what God intended it to be? How far? All we can do is look back. All we can do is follow along in church history and, and try to do a little examination. How far have we come? Where are we at today as a church? You see, I don't want to be the church that has a record of good works, but has left its first love. I don't want to be that church. Even though the church at Ephesus had all these good, they had left their first love. And I don't want to be a church that is compromising the truths of God's word. or compromising in integrity. I don't want to be that church. I don't want to be that kind of Christian. And I don't want to be a church that has become so weakened spiritually that we allow and we tolerate corruption. Praise the Lord for Roe versus Wade being overturned. Amen? Amen. Here's the sad part. Not everybody even within, quote, the church, are praising God for that. You think they should be. I think they should be. But we are not, in my prayer, and I don't believe this is a church, to be a church that would allow and be tolerant of corruption, tolerant of allowing things to come into the church that are ungodly, against God, Hearts that have become so hard that it's, they are unable to repent. What does a heart look like that's like that? Unable to repent. I don't want to be a church that stands behind a big name, behind a big building, 
I don't want to be a church that looks like it has it all together. But it's dead. It's dying. It's lacking life within it. I think that we would all probably be shocked if we knew how many people go to church because it makes good business sense. Or how many come to church and they, they come because it's a great place to socialize. You know, to get to know people and maybe to meet someone. You see, people come to church for a lot of different reasons. People come because, you know what, that's what my family's done for generations. We go to church. Do you know the Lord? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? The Church of Philadelphia was the dawning of a new period in church history. It was going to be a good time for the church in a lot of different ways. Not a perfect church, but a good time for the church. You see, doctrine and that reformation now is going to be brought back together with the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you put those two things together, the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you begin to see that God begins to work. The church was beginning to see revival within it. It was a period in the church where men and women, men and women of God were having a great impact upon this world. Charles Finney, in 1821 was the key leader of the evangelical revival movement in America. The Welsh revivalist Daniel Rowland and Howard Harris and Williams Williams and Evan Roberts in the 1904 Welsh revival. The word of God was once again being mixed with the spirit of God. And God was working through the church Men like Billy Sunday and Billy Graham and Andrew Murray and Dwight L. Moody, William Booth, Charles Spurgeon, and many others that had an impact upon this world and upon Christianity. And what resulted out of that was that missionaries were being sent out. Missionaries were going out from various churches around the world. Mission agencies were forming. They were dialoguing. They were strategically considering how they could reach this world for Christ. It's a good thing. You had missionaries like William Carey in 1761 to 1834. David Livingstone in 1830. George Mueller in 1805. Hudson Taylor, Amy Carmichael, Jonathan Goforth, Nate Satan, Jim Elliott. And if you haven't heard of some of these names before, great testimonies of what God can do through a man or a woman in the way of missions and being sold out for the gospel. This is what was coming out of this period in church history. And there's many other examples that you could read. It'll encourage your heart. They were empowered. They were being led by the Holy Spirit. And 
God was doing a fresh work in the church. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Timothy 3, chapter uh, 3, verse 1, he gave Timothy a warning. A warning that goes way back. He said, look what he says. He said, know this, that in the last days, perilous times are going to come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow, what an ugly list. Sounds like today, doesn't it? Sounds like the world we're living in right now, present day. But then look at this. Look what he says in verse 5. Paul says to Timothy, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, Paul says, turn away. What a description. Is, that, is he describing people within, quote, the church? He is. The people that would profess that they know God. It, it tells us in the book of Titus that there will be those that will profess that they know God, but in their works they deny Him. Paul's giving a warning here to Timothy. They have a form of godliness. The church is reforming. These things are happening within, but denying its power. You see, reformation without regeneration is dead. You can come across looking very religious. And not be regenerated by the Holy Spirit and you are dead. As a matter of fact, you're lost without Christ. But all under the name of religion. He goes on in verse 7. In our text, he says, these things says, and look at this list of how Jesus describes himself. These things says he who is holy. That's the first one. And he who is true. That's the second one. And he who has the key of David. That's the third one. And he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. That's the fourth. These all describe Jesus. And who he is and his character and who God is. He says, these things says he who is holy. Like Athens in the day, Philadelphia was also a city that had emperor worship within it. I've talked about that in some of the other cities. And within this city, the emperor, the people, they gave the emperor the title the son of the Holy One. 
And here's Jesus writing to the church of Philadelphia to him who is holy. And there's really only one who is holy, who is truly holy. As a matter of fact, Jesus is taking this back to the book of Leviticus. He's taking this back to the Old Testament. Jesus is describing himself here to the church of Philadelphia. People living within a city who have this emperor worship. He describes himself as he who is holy. Which, by the way, is God's number one attribute. If you want to say who is God, his number one attribute is God is holy. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44, we read, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is something that's only given to God Himself, Yahweh, Jehovah God. For Jesus to say, He who is holy is writing to you, is in essence saying, I'm God. You see, as Christians, we're called also to be holy. We're called to be holy in our conduct, to be dedicated to God, to be sacred, to be reserved for God and His service. Whatever you have for me, Lord, that I want to do. To be per pure, to be perfect, to be worthy of it, to be consecrated to Him. That's a calling upon our life as a Christian. But when the holiness of God is spoken of in Scripture, it speaks of separation. It speaks of exaltation. It speaks of absolute perfection of character. When God says that He is holy, that's what it speaks of. He shares His holiness with us, but we're imperfect human beings. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 59, verse 1, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But then it says this, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. God is holy. It's his holiness that would separate a person from ever being able to enter his presence unless we receive his righteousness, unless he calls it and makes us holy, we cannot enter into the presence of God. God's holiness separates sinful man from himself. But remember Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he saw that vision, and it says in one of the Angels cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. It's just crying out the holiness of God. There's only one other time in the book, in the Bible, where that holy, holy, holy is used. It's in the book of Revelation, in that heavenly scene. We're going to be saying those words in that day when we're in the presence of the Lord. The fact that it's repeated three times is a, a way that it expresses the, uh, the, the absoluteness of his holiness. The completion, the absoluteness of God's holiness. And some have even thought that holy, holy, holy could be Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're all part of that God, that triune God that's holy. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, we read, To whom then will you liken me? He's talking about God. Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number, and he calls them by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. That's all. Isaiah 43, 15, God speaking to Israel said, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. We also read in our text that Jesus says, these things says, He who is true. He's holy, but He's also true. And I, and I, as I already shared, that holiness of God is his number one attribute, God's holiness. And the second attribute of God is that God's righteousness comes out of his holiness. This is important for you to know, that God is holy and out of his holiness comes his righteousness, which means that God always acts everything that he does he always acts in complete conformity to his holiness. When God judges, it will be in righteousness. Why? Because God is holy and he will do it perfectly. There won't be people going to hell that don't belong in hell. God will judge everything righteously. Nations will be judged righteously because of God's holiness. The third part of his moral attributes is that God is love. And the fourth part is that God is truth. God is truth. He's the sum total of all truth. One of our worship songs this morning was on the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 1.20 for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen. Amen, church? Amen. These things says he who is true. The word true here in the Greek, it actually denotes true in the sense of being real and genuine. Aren't you glad? That our God is true. 
Our God is truth. And he's real and he's genuine. He's the real thing. In contrast to the false gods that were in the city of Philadelphia and all the other ones, as they erected all these false gods and images that were all around. And here's Jesus telling the church of Philadelphia, these things says he who is true. I'm the real thing. I'm not some image that can't speak. I'm not some idol made of rocks in order. I am the real God. I'm the real thing. I'm genuine. Jesus said in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's Jesus' words. He says he is the truth. All other things in this world that want to compete with that and compete with the truth that he is, is false. Everything that lines up with Jesus Christ and the truth of his word and the truth of who he is, that's truth, according to Jesus. Everything else, all other religions that oppose that, is false. These things, the third one, these things says he who is the key of David. Jesus actually here in this text, in, in this letter to them, was quoting from Isaiah 22, verse 22, which reads like this way. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. You see, Jesus tells them at Philadelphia that he's the keeper of the key of David. He's in the line of David, isn't he? Jesus. He is the keeper of the key of David. He has the authority as the son of David, to deal with the issues that are within the church. He, had, he can deal with opening doors and closing. He has all the authority to do what he's going to do. Aren't you happy that we have a God that is in complete control of the church and everything outside of the church? The key of David, it speaks of God's complete sovereignty and authority that he has. That he's the head of the house of David. That he is one day going to sit on the throne of David in that millennial kingdom. And we're going to reign with him as kings and priests in that day. We also read that he opens and no one shuts. And shuts and no one opens. And we see this happen throughout church history. How God opens doors. Have you ever had God open a door for you? I have many times. God opens a door of opportunity for me. And I pray that all of you have seen open doors. And if you see an open door, it's because God opened it. God has the ability to open a door to kind of guide and, and put you in the footsteps and guide your, direct your footsteps to that perfect place, that perfect timing. I call it divine appointments. 
but he also can divinely close doors, which no one can open. Don't ever try to fight against God, even though we do at times. Don't try to fight against him. Don't try to, you know, God, I'm going to bend your arm. I'm going to make you open this door for me. I, I, I want you to open it. And I'm going to do everything I can to make you open it. And we don't change that in God. What he closes and what he calls a closed door is a closed door. I found through the years it's so much easier just to go along with what God wants to do. Not what I want to do. I'm not going to make him do what I want him to do. I'm going to allow him to open doors and I'm going to allow him to close doors in my life. Remember what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8. When Paul was there in prison, he says, For which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. He was imprisoned by the Romans. But then he says, But the word of God is not chained. You see the mindset the Apostle Paul had as he sat there in prison, chained in a, a Roman cell. The Word of God is not chained. Why? Because his God, you can't chain it. You could chain me, but you cannot chain the Gospel. Remember Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. He says, and I also say to you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Can the gates of hell prevail against the church? Can the devil give his upper hand upon God's church? No. God, the devil can get into the church and get into people and get into a lot of different things, but he will never prevail against God's church. Look what Jesus says in verse 8. He says this to the church of Philadelphia. I know your works. Jesus says, I see your works. And he sees ours. And so I put before you, because I see the works that you do. Because I see your diligence. Because I see what you're doing in, in, in the way of your faithfulness and your works. I set an open door before you. That's what I ask. That would be my prayer for this church, that God would set an open door before us for more, to be able to do more for the gospel's sake. And it also appears that even under the very difficult circumstances that the church of Philadelphia was in, living in a culture that was pagan, ungodly, and everything about it, they remain faithful. And because of that, Jesus says, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and you have not denied my name, even in the midst of your persecutions, even in the midst of your trials and tribulations, and even though you have just a little strength, even though you don't have much and you just feel like you're hanging on by a thread, but you're remaining faithful, you've kept my word, you have not denied my name. And with that, God is well pleased. 
in the world you're going to have tribulation. So be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world, Jesus says. Open doors of opportunity to a faithful church. That's my prayer for this church. This word set. He says, I have set before you an open door. In the NIV it reads, I have placed before you an open door. I have put, the NASB says, I have put before you an open door. Do you get the picture? He, he has this door that he has opened. He, he's granting, he's supplying, he's given this, this way for us to have this open door of ministry to those that are faithful. You see, the things that you are faithful in, church, the things that I'm faithful in, we'll call it the little things. If you're faithful in the little things that God has given to you to accomplish here while you have time on this earth, if you're faithful in those little things, he'll give you more. If you're unfaithful in even the little things, then why would God give you more? He'll give more to those that are faithful. And that will continue. He'll even give you more. Hopefully you're saying you want more. Some of us might be saying, I don't want any more. I got enough. But I'll tell you, there's no more greater joy than to serve the Lord and say, Lord, all that you have for me, give me more. Let me be used of you in a greater way. But what are the important things to God when he looks at the church? And even more specifically, when he looks at you and I, what are the important things to God? that you would remain faithful in the doors that he's already opened to you. Even when you feel like you have a little strength, even when it's hard, oh, it's just hard, but God, oh, I'm going to be faithful. That you would keep his word. You wouldn't deviate from it. You would let it be what direction would guide you. And number three, that you, even under pressure, would not deny his name. More pressure is coming, church. More pressure is coming against the church and against you in the church from this world as the days grow darker and darker. More is coming. And how do you think that sounds in the ears of people that are in persecuted places in this world that have to make a stand for Christ, even for their own life. Look at verse 9. And indeed I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. You see, God sees it all. Can't fool God can't be a religious person. You can't come across religious and God, you know, you pull one over on God. You'll never pull one over on God. He sees the heart. He sees the mind. He knows exactly who are his and who are not. 
And even though you might be of Jewish heritage, he's saying, even though you might go to that synagogue and you might have dialogues with people about things of God and you might come across as very religious, he says, you lie. And as a matter of fact, you're of the synagogue of Satan. This is my synagogue and I say that you're of the synagogue of Satan. You're either for me or against me. You can't do both. Jesus is saying to them, there are some that are in your midst. They appear to be Jews. They appear to be Christians. But they're really not. In reality, they go to that place to them, it's a synagogue of Satan. That's radical. That's to the point. But in God's perspective, in Jesus' perspective, look how important that is. People thinking they're okay. People thinking that they're, that, you know, they're religion, and they go and they do it, but they're not. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not done this in your name? And done these miraculous things. And depart from me for I never knew you. He doesn't even say I once knew you. I never knew you. From the very beginning of your religious experience. I never knew you. That's going to be an eye opening day. Jesus says I know your works. But I also know the works of those who say they know me and they are not. I see both. He says in verse 9, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. This is all going to be part of God's righteous judgment. Jesus tells the church that one day he's going to, they're going to be vindicated before their persecutors, before those that say they are or not. Someday those who profess that they are of the way of the truth and profess that they're part of the only true church, and they're going to be found a liar. It's going to come out in that day. That every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. It doesn't matter what you did for all those years here on earth going out with a false gospel. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, all who claim to be and fall under the heading of Christianity that's inconsistent with the Word of God. It's a different gospel. And because of this faithful perseverance, because you have kept my command, my word to persevere, I will also keep you. Look what he says in verse 10. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon, come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. What an encouragement. 
Do you know what's coming? Do you know that there's seven years of tribulation coming upon this earth? That day's not here yet. We're not in the tribulation period. That is a future day that is yet to come. It could be soon. We need to be ready. But because you have kept my command, you have kept, and I'll say my word, to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole earth, the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. This word kept, it means to guard. It means to watch over, to obey, to protect. And you see, as Christians, that's what we're called to do. We're called to, to obey, we're called to, to keep, and we're called to protect the truths of God's word. I'm going to stand for truth. I'm going to stand for what the word of God says. What the word of God says, that's what I stand upon. Because you have kept my word. To persevere. Perseverance and patience and keeping his word. It means that believers have been entrusted with this word of God, with the gospel. We've been entrusted to watch over it. Somebody comes to you with a false gospel, what do you do? Well, you know, I think we can all get along. Why can't we have Mormons come to our prayer meeting and sit in our prayer meeting with us and pray? We're all praying to the same God. No, we're not. There's a difference. And not everything, not all roads lead to God. And we need to be persevering, being faithful, and keeping God's word. And because of this faithful perseverance, Jesus tells these believers, he tells you and I this morning, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world. I believe this hour of trial that we read of here, or this hour of testing would be another way we could put it, is speaking of the great tribulation that's to come. A period that is yet to come. And in context, this hour of trial, I believe, is really, we can tell that it's speaking of a future event. It's specific to a time of testing. And even the word test here in the Greek, it means... Uh, a testing of trial and temptation. And we're told that it's going to come upon the whole world, not just the United States of America, but upon the whole world, upon all the inhabitants of the earth. It's going to come upon a very specific group of people. It's going to come upon those who dwell on the earth. 
place is not here in my king. My place is in heaven. But the earth dwellers, which I believe is speaking of those who don't know Christ, it's going to come upon the whole world and upon those who dwell on the earth. I don't believe we're earth dwellers if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're heavenly minded. We have a place prepared for us. The Lord is going to remove us from here. And those that are here on this earth, those who dwell on the earth, are going to be tested for seven years. The promise to those who have kept the word of his patience will be that they will be kept from the hour of testing. That's a promise that we can all stand upon and we can all rejoice and go, thank you, Lord, to keep you from the peril of wrath that's to come upon this earth. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 17, we'll get there. We read this. After the opening of the seventh seal, we read, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who will be able to stand? Do you have an answer for that? I do. No one will be able to stand. The great day of his wrath has come. And who will be able to stand? Paul writing to the church in Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9 he says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. That's what we're doing. Whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not appointed to wrath. Wrath is not, you're not going to be part of the, the testing that is going to come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. And then Jesus says in verse 11, Behold, I am coming quickly. He gives some words of comfort and hope. And don't we need that? As a church, the Lord is coming back. If I, if I say to you this morning, Hey, Jesus is coming back. Does that thrill your heart? You go inside the oh. Even so, Lord, come quickly. I'm ready. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Which in a sense means that he's coming suddenly. He's coming unexpectedly also. He's going to come without announcement. And my only question to all of us, are we ready? Because that day will come. And then we'll stand before the Lord. And are we ready? Hold fast, verse 11, to what you have. That no one will make 
may take your crown. The idea that is pictured here is, is really not that a, a thief is coming in to take the crown, but it's really a person who is giving up or forfeiting their crown. It's the person giving it up. Hold fast to what you have, Christians, that no one may take your crown. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one received the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Did you know that you're all in a race? You're all running in the same race that I am. And you need to run in such a way that you're going to receive the prize. I believe that Jesus is telling them as we run in such a way that you may win and that you may lay hold of that crown of life. The Stephanos is the Greek word. The crown of life that is going to be given to each one of us that know Jesus as Lord and Savior. One person wrote this, Never forget that a man most likely to steal your crown is yourself. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You are in no greater danger from anyone or anything than from yourself. You see, we can yield up what God has given to us by living a, a, a life that is inconsistent. And always keep in mind when you read these letters to the seven churches, this is a mixture of people within. Like there could be a mixture in this church. You could have a mixture of people that know the Lord and don't know the Lord. Remember that all of the exhortations to repent and to give, you know, you're talking about people in within what we call the church and God sees within the church and he sees those that are his and those that are not. Those that think they are, but they're not. And then we read in Revelation 4, 4, that in that day when we're in the presence, I believe, of the Lord, we're going to have these golden crowns on our head because it says those that are clothed in white robes, I believe this is the church. They're going to have these golden crowns on their head and then you read in verse 10 of chapter 4 and it says, And the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worshipped him who lives forever and ever and we're told that they cast their crowns before the throne. Those crowns that are going to be given as we worship the Lord cast before him. No better place for them to be than to cast our crowns before him as we worship him. And then in verse 12, we'll close. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. He who overcomes, and I've shared this each letter. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he that believes that Jesus is the Christ. 
You want to be an overcomer? Then put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, and you will become an overcomer. The pillars in the temple, they stood for strength, they stood for stability, for service within the temple. The pillars of the temple. It's interesting, that's what was remaining in that picture, these, these pillars there in Philadelphia. He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple. You want to be a pillar within the temple of God. And you shall go out no more. No, we don't have to go out like, like the people who are going out of the city because they're living on the outskirts of the city. No more going out and coming in. I will make him a pillar in the temple of God and he will go out no more. Never be removed from its place. Never be shaken down. Not in a topple over. I, I'm sure that these believers in Philadelphia, as they, as they read this, they knew what it was like. They knew what happened to those pillars. This is a promise to those who would overcome that I'll make them a pillar in the temple of God. And I will write on him, him the name of my God. Listen to this promise. I will write on him, I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Sounds like we've got a few names that are going to be written on us. What do names do? Names identify. They're identification marks. What is your name? You know, it identifies you, who you are. It shows that you belong to him. They're marks that show that we have privileges as a child of God. The overcomers have been given privileges by God. And he says, and I'm going to write my name on you. The name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and the new name of Jesus, my new name, I'm going to write on you. You're mine. I identify you as a child of God, Jesus says. You're mine. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to have an ear to hear. And we need to take it to heart. We need to say, Lord, help me. Lord, if I, if I could be any one of these churches, I want to be the church of Philadelphia. Because wait till next week when we get into the church of Laodicea. Last day's church. Ah, we're going to see. And Lord, are we that church, that time frame, I believe, if we're following the course of history and looking at these seven letters throughout church history, I think the church of Laodicea is the last day's church. It doesn't mean we have to be the church of Laodicea. It simply means that we're going to be, if we're not already, in that time frame now, the church of Laodicea.
And so let's have uh, Kyle and the worship team come up. Closes in a song. Let's all stand. Father, I thank you uh, for giving us your word, for giving us the promises of your word, the confidence that we can have in the things that we read even this morning. Lord, that you're with us, that your hand is upon us, that you want to use us, Lord, in, in, in greater ways. And Father, I just pray that you would work in your people, work in me, work in this church, or do a fresh work in our midst. Continue to stir our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Continue to give us open doors which no one can shut. Lord, that we might enter into glory someday and that this church, Lord, would be one that would please you. Lord, I just pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that they might come to know you as Lord and Savior this morning. And Lord, if there's anyone here that is lacking in, in their fervor for you and the things of God and their holiness and just living for you, Lord, that they would repent and turn their whole heart toward you. And Lord, that you would fill those that are hungering for your Holy Spirit. Fill us, Lord, with your Holy Spirit and power. Lord, that we might say no to sin, that we might be a witness of Jesus Christ, that we might redeem the days that we're living in, that we might run hard, that we might receive the crown, the prize, Lord, at the end of it all. And Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray.